the things he lets us go through, preparing us for a greater anointing, for greater ministry, for greater revival. I'd like to direct your attention to John chapter 1. Reading just a few scriptures here in John chapter 1. Verses 28 and 29, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That was quite a declaration, a prophetic declaration. I'm sure that... Uh, John was somewhat more animated than I am right now when he made this profound prophetic declaration to the world and to the crowd that was gathered there that particular day. You may be seated. The concept of the lamb was not lost on the people to whom John spoke these words, but This is the first time they have ever heard about the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God that John introduced to the world was the the answer to the indelible and irremovable stain of sin that had been on humanity by that time for 4,000 years. As Christians, and especially as apostolic believers, we are intimately familiar with the very important function that the Lamb fulfills throughout the Scripture. John 1, verse 35 and 36, it says again, The next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, picture they're just standing there, a couple disciples standing there, And looking upon Jesus, as he walked, he said to them, paraphrasing now, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, there are many who have no interest whatsoever in the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God does not fit into their plans, to their goals, or into their aspirations. Uh, We in this room dread the thought of where we would be today if it were not for the Lamb of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The allegorical personification of the Lamb of God followed a long trail of blood that was shed by many lambs that preceded it. It is interesting, therefore, that the first time that the lamb is even mentioned in the scripture is when Abraham took Isaac, his son, to Mount Moriah, where he was 
ordered of the Lord to offer Isaac a burnt offering there unto him. Genesis 22, verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, which is a type of Jesus Christ carrying his cross after being scourged all the way to Golgotha. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now we know, we have addressed this many times, that Abraham's answer to Isaiah, or Isaac going up the side of Mount Moriah, was prophetic in two ways. First of all, it was prophetic on the, in the realm that that very day, God would provide himself with a lamb that would be offered as a burnt offering instead of Isaac, his son. But it's also a prophecy that was not fulfilled until the birth and life of Jesus Christ when Abraham's God said God will provide himself. He will be the lamb that will be offered for the sins of the world. Seeing that this is the first time in the scriptures where a lamb is mentioned, we do not know where, we do not know when a lamb became the customary and the acceptable sacrifice that men offered to God upon carefully constructed altars of worship and altars of consecration. We really don't know the historical background of how a lamb came to be the customary sacrifice for sin. Genesis 3.21 tells us that unto Adam also into his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now we may make assumptions about those animals. We may make assumptions even to the fact or degree that they perhaps were lambs to which God used their skins to make clothes for Adam and Eve, but we really don't know that. Personally, I believe it's highly probable based on uh, the fact that a lamb of God would one day come and his blood would save the world. Highly probable that they were lambs, but we cannot say that for sure. But then we have Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Noah built an altar unto the Lord. This was after the floods receded. And took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing 
as I have done. So hundreds of years before clean and unclean beasts were very carefully defined within the Mosaic law, this determination of what beasts were clean and what beasts were unclean, what beasts would be acceptable as an offering and what beasts would be unacceptable as an offering, that determination had already been made culturally. You have to understand that God is working in places that you cannot see, where you are unaware of, just like he is right now in our world. The Hebrew word for clean is tehor. It is an adjective meaning clean, pure, genuine, or distinguishing things that are culturally pure and capable of being used in rituals and in offerings unto God. Therefore, the law specifically stated in Deuteronomy 14, 3 through 6, Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart, and the roebuck, and the fallow deer, and the wild goat, and the pie garg, which is an ibex, and the wild ox, and the chamois, which is a gazelle, and every beast that parteth the hoof, and cleaveth the cleft into two claws, and cheweth the cud among the beast, that ye shall eat. And there were even within the law stated exceptions to this particular rule. There were also legal descriptions for clean birds and unclean birds and fowls. Notably, upon the altar that Noah built after he and his family came out of the ark, uh, he offered clean beasts because while there were two by two that entered the ark of clean beasts, there were sevens. They came in sevens. And that was so that Noah would have animals to which he could offer unto the Lord upon the altar as a form of worship and in gratitude at this point for his saving grace, because the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But by the time we find Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, lambs appear to have become the principal and the most common sacrifice that was offered unto the Lord. The idea of a lamb for sacrifice. Why a lamb? Why would a lamb become the go-to offering uh, that would be placed upon altars of mankind in acts of contrition, in acts of worship, in acts of consecration? The idea of a lamb as a sacrifice is based upon the innocence and based upon it being flawless. And so it serves as a sufficient representative of something that does not deserve to be there. It serves as a representative of something that shouldn't be there, has no reason to be there, but it's there in place of man. It's there because of man. It's there because of man's sin and his rebellion against God. 
I think you will agree with me or not, does not matter, I suppose, but one of the greatest acts of injustice in this lifetime is to be falsely accused or to be punished for something that you are completely innocent of and then after that bearing the reproach and the shame of a crime or an act that you did not commit. I'm talking about lambs now. Done nothing to deserve being placed upon an altar and offered as a sacrifice for the man and for the woman because of their sin. And yet down through the ages, countless little innocent lambs have been sacrificed in order to bridge that great void that exists between sinful man and a holy God. Knowing this, it stands to reason why after nine powerful and destructive plagues were released upon the land of Egypt, that God would employ a host of innocent and helpless little lambs as the means through which his people would finally depart from 430 years of bondage. It really is amazing when you think about it. He did not call upon an army to stand against Pharaoh. He did not call upon uh, a, a, a trail of, of vehicles to swoop in and carry the children of Israel out of Egypt. What God chose for them in that hour was a herd or a flock of lambs. It is written in Exodus chapter 12. I thought reading it would be much better for you than just trying to tell the story and piecing it together. The Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. That, that just something about that just touches me in the Holy Ghost right now. God wants this to be the beginning of something for you. He wants this day, he wants this service to be the beginning of something for you. Our brother talked about Acts 2.38, repentance, baptism. We'll get to that in a moment. Amen, that there's something beyond that. You've got to understand, coming out of the water in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Ghost, that, that is the beginning for you. That's not the end. That's not the end of the line. That's the start of something great in your life. It'll be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. 
They shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Up until the, the life, death, and burial of Jesus Christ, this was the most iconic and important event in the history of the Jewish people. In fact, it was so important to the fabric of Hebrew history and to the fabric of Hebrew culture that it was to be celebrated and reenacted every year following that event. In fact, on the exact same day as it occurred originally. This annual celebration, of course, is a day of remembrance that we refer to and the Hebrew people still refer to as the Passover. The Passover. And we don't have time to explain exactly what Passover is, but uh, it would be good for you to read it and study this for yourself. At the center of the Passover, the original Passover, the first Passover, there were many, many lambs. But succeeding Passovers would require the sacrifice of just one lamb for the entire nation. But it strikes me as strange that at the time of this first Passover and in regard to the nine plagues that had virtually destroyed the landscape as well as the economy of Egypt, gaining the ire and the wrath of Pharaoh, that a lamb, a lamb, a little lamb would be the very thing that would finally breach the door to their prison. It would be a lamb that would finally break the chains of slavery from them. It would be a lamb that would finally open a door that had been closed to them for 430 years. So the nation of Israel was preparing to depart from Egypt and from uh, a lifestyle of hard bondage. And from their own perspective, a lamb would have been the last thing that they would have chosen to secure their exodus. That they would have uh, polled the children of Israel saying, what do, you, what do you need to get out of Egypt? What do you think we need as a people? A lamb would have never been mentioned. A lamb would have not even crossed their mind. But so I ask you, what will it take to break that grip that sin has upon you? What will it take to convince you to give your life over unto Jesus Christ? What will it finally take for you to decide to give your heart to God to repent of your sins? I'm here to tell you, nothing other than a lamb will do it. Not the most eloquent preaching, not the most educated mind, not the greatest theologian, not the greatest choir that's ever sung, or the greatest anointing that's ever been felt. What it's going to take for you to break that sin that's in your life is nothing more than a lamb. Considering all potential possibilities, what do you think it will take to convince you to finally consent to God's grace and repent of your sins and give your life over unto his control. As the church, as we contemplate and as we prepare for our grand departure from this world,
as the culture around us continues to collapse and erode and become ever more wicked? Is it possible that our greatest need in this hour is in the person of a lamb? I know we think about all the things that we need to have revival, all the things we need to break the back of the prince of this city, all the things that we need to, to thrust us into that realm of apostolic demonstration. I wonder if we even consider the fact that what we really need more than anything is found in the person of a lamb. So innocuous, so so small, so weak, so frail that no one would even think about choosing a lamb. And if we would make out our list, a lamb would not even be on the list. But it's an extremely rare situation when everybody needs exactly the same thing at the same time. But I believe that I can stand before this congregation today. I can say that like Israel, who was on the cusp of their departure from Egypt and the, their subsequent adventure into the wilderness, what we need is a lamb. We need a lamb. We need a lamb. But I come bearing hopefully good news 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. A foundational and fundamental and disputable New Testament truth is that a sinner's first step toward God must be the step of repentance. Must be. There is no way to get around that. I, I don't know what you do every day, but I know that every morning as I approach the court of God, it is with contrition and repentance, for he is so holy and I am so so carnal and so human that, that I probably transgressed upon him not even knowing it and so God I need you to wash me again and cleanse me again and prepare me again sanctify and so I can step on the holy ground and enter into your presence but when you come out of the world when you come out of a lifetime of sin and, and rebellion against God you need to repent The immovable, the irrevocable stones of the foundation upon which this church rests were laid on the day of Pentecost in Peter's response to those that asked them, men and brethren, what shall we do? I'm going to tell you what Peter's response is. You apostolics could quote this. You can be in a coma. You can be under anesthesia. Have an open heart surgery and you could quote this. 
But it's very important that you understand that there were 60 to 80,000 people gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 plus the 120 were baptized and received the Holy Ghost. But that leaves tens of thousands of others. Thousands of people heard the same exact thing that the 3,000 heard and they went home without God that day. How many times do we need to hear the same message before we consent to God's grace and we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross? But Peter's answer was, of course, that you must repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It absolutely infuriates me that the Christian world refuses this message. It absolutely infuriates me that there are people setting tens of thousands of them across our city in Christian churches hungry for God but when they ask preacher what do I need to do they will tell them all you have to do is believe it angers me beyond what I can even explain to you today 1 Corinthians chapter 3 10 and 11 according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Here's the warning. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For nearly 2,000 years, from the time that these words were written, and yet we continue to build upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and by the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But I must digress and take us back to the Passover lamb and ask you a question. When Israel came out of Egypt, they forever etched in time and eternity a type of, the, of a sinner coming out of the world. Israel coming out of Egypt is a type. When you are saved, you come out of the world, and Egypt is a type of that world. And Israel was a type of coming out of the world. But when we look at that, I want to ask the question, where do we see repentance in the allegorical narrative of Israel coming out of Egypt? Now, all you apostolic scholars and theologians that have read your Bible dozens of times, all you preachers in the room, I want you right now to think, where do we see repentance in the allegorical narrative of Israel coming out of Egypt because repentance is a part of the foundational principle of redemption and salvation. And we've established that here today that only through repentance 
can we begin to break free from the curse of sin and from the addiction of self-aggrandizement. But the night of their departure from Egypt, by all accounts, the children of Israel were experiencing a number of different things, such as anxiousness. They were excited. They were enthusiastic. And they were filled with expectation. But that doesn't tell all of the story. For the next few minutes, I would like to tell you a part of the story that you may have never heard before. And I know that piques your interest because we're not like the, uh, the Hellenists or the Greeks or the Stoics who come just to hear some new thing. Moses instructed the people that on the 10th day of the month, a representative from each Hebrew family would have been the head of that household, were to go among the flocks of sheep and goats, and they were to very carefully inspect the lambs, and they were to choose a lamb that was flawless, without spot, there was no sores on it, it was not sickly, uh, it was not pale, it was a perfect lamb, and it was completely without blemish, and it was to be less than one year old. In my mind, I can see Hebrew men walking through the flocks of sheep and goats. You can see them out there inspecting the little lambs and looking to find that one perfect little lamb that they were going to take home in obedience to Moses' command. Perhaps you've wondered how they could tell that a lamb was less than one year old. I don't know if you've ever pondered that or not, uh, but it was important because being less than one year old was a critical feature to whether the blood of that lamb would be sufficient to keep the death angel out of their homes the night of Passover. As it turns out, uh, when lambs are born, they have four pairs of baby or milk teeth. They're, when they're approximately one year old, the middle pair of teeth will be replaced by a pair of permanent incisors, and I'm sure every lamb's mother appreciated that fact as they were nursing their young. But it's very important to note that these cute little cuddly lambs were to be taken into each home where they were to be nurtured, they were to be fed, they were to be cared for for four whole days. Four days. So picture with me, if you can, what it must have been like when dad walked in the door of the house carrying this cute little cuddly lamb. Oh, the kids would come running. All the little boys and girls would gather around. You've seen children when they get a puppy for Christmas or their birthday. My gosh, it's so cute and so cuddly. They would have been greeted, of course, by 
the swarms of children. These children would have smothered this little lamb with love and affection. My goodness, what a sight that would have been. And over the next four days, they would become inseparable. My goodness, what a beautiful sight this is. I cannot say with any certainty, but it's very likely that these children would have given their little lamb a name. I, I bet you that lamb wasn't in the house for 30 minutes until it was given a name. People name their cars. They do. We went over to Belk Lindsay yesterday and they were having a car show, old cars, old cars everywhere. And we walked by a guy who was sitting uh, by his late model Corvette. I walked up to him and said, uh, I'd like to rent that for the weekend. He busts out laughing and said, I can't even give this thing away. I should have turned around and said, why don't you try right now? <laughs> However, I know I could not afford the insurance, so I'd have to pass. They were given names. In every Hebrew home throughout the land of Goshen, families would spend the next four days bonding and becoming emotionally attached to these precious little lambs. Little did they know, little did the family know, that on the evening of the fourth day, dad was instructed to take this new little member of the family and to drive a dagger into its heart and to drain its blood into a basin, take a bunch of hyssop and to splash the blood of their cute little cuddly friend all over the doorpost and the lintel of their door. If that was not traumatic enough, then they had to roast that little lamb and then eat its flesh together as a family. If you want to know where repentance is, in the allegorical narrative, here it is. In every house where these lambs were slain and their blood applied to the doorpost, it was traumatic to the family. These lambs were killed against the shrieks and the cries and the screams and the pleading of the family. And yet, it had to be done. It's written in Exodus chapter 12 that Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants, this is after the death angel passed through the land. The Bible says in all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not one house where there was not one dead. But long before the Egyptians cried out over the death of their firstborn, there were cries heard in every house in Goshen when dad took their little lamb and killed it and spread its blood over the doorposts and roasted its flesh with fire. And I know this appears harsh beyond measure. I've heard it said that 
We should not talk about Calvary because it's a bloody message. It is a gory message to tell about Jesus and what was done to him the day that he was crucified. But I'm here to tell you that there was repentance in every house. They were crying out to God, dead, don't do this, stop this. And yet it had to be done. I'm going to tell you, it don't matter whether you believe it or not. Jesus died for your sins. It may not matter to you one iota what he suffered and what he experienced so that you could be free from sin and escape the flames of hell. But he did it anyway. Yes, there was repentance there. That's why they had to take these lambs into their homes for four days prior to the night of Passover. Israel was witness to every act that God perpetrated upon the Egyptians. The, the lice, the flies, the water turning to blood, the frogs, the locusts, all of it. They saw it all. But I want you to know this was personal. This is happening to us in our home. This is grieving my family. This is rending the hearts of my children. It's my kids that are crying out now. And so it was personal. And it was an emotional cost that was exacted upon the Hebrew people. And as they marched out of Egypt, I guarantee you that they weren't dancing and they weren't celebrating. Their celebration was muted and subdued because of what they had just personally experienced. Before we enter the final phase or portion of this message I want to make two statements to you the first is until the cross of Jesus Christ becomes personal you cannot be saved until it becomes personal secondly in order to truly live for God you have to fall in love with the Lamb you must fall in love with the Lamb. Transitioning to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, we have seen God's divine purpose why these Passover lambs were taken into the homes of God's people and kept there for four days. I must say that had the Hebrew fathers been instructed to go take a lamb out of the flock without blemish of a first year and just taken and killed that lamb and applied its blood and roasted it with fire, it would not have torn the hearts out of the people of God. But that's not what they were commanded to do. You see, it was about more than just the blood on the doorpost. I'm going, I'm going to, I've got to say to you that it was, the blood was vital. 
trust me. But it was, there's more to that than just the blood on the doorpost. God wanted the people to feel the impact of true sacrifice. So the killing of thousands of innocent lambs would have been horrific on its own merit, but God wanted the experience to be both horrific and traumatic for the Hebrew people. See, it's been nearly 50 years. In fact, in about a month, it will be 50 years when an apostolic preacher preached on a Wednesday night about the cross of Jesus Christ. And it, it, it tore our hearts out so much that my wife and I went to the altar and repented of our sins and cried out to God because it was so traumatic hearing about Jesus on the cross. But it's supposed to be traumatic. If you can sit through the gospel and feel nothing, God help you. If you can sit through the message of the cross and it doesn't move you, it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't stir you, then there's something wrong or broken or disconnected somewhere. But that night, the heart of every Jewish boy and girl, man and woman was crushed when that lamb was killed and its blood applied. David in the throes of repentance said it best in Psalms 51, 16 and 17, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. When Nathan the prophet told him about his sin and when it struck David that God knew that he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed in battle, he slid off of the throne onto the floor. He didn't call the high priest and say, prepare a hundred lambs to sacrifice for my sin because he knew none of the blood of those lambs would mean anything if I'm not really sorry for what I've done. Without true, genuine, heartfelt repentance, what a baptism. And even salvation would be nothing more than a business decision. So we're separated from Calvary by 2,000 years, very nearly 2,000 years. It won't be long we'll be able to say that for sure. It would be easy to consider the death of our Lord and the shedding of his blood as just a means to an end. It's just an escape hatch from hell. It's nothing more than a cure for the sin that ails me and the addictions that bind me. It's just a release from the demons that torment me in my mind, tear at my soul. It would be easy to just consider it all. It's just nothing more than a means to an end. 
But the title of this message that I have not yielded as yet is this. This lamb has a name. This lamb was not just some random lamb. This lamb that died for you has a name. So the message of the cross that is to be preached to every creature worship team, please join me on the platform. The message of the cross is designed by God to emote the same emotional response that David felt when Nathan stood before his throne and called him an adulterer and a murderer. It's supposed to emote the same emotional response that the Israelites experienced when these cute, little, cuddly, precious lambs were slain in the land of Goshen. But this lamb, the lamb I'm talking about, this lamb that died for you, this lamb that died for me, this lamb has a name. And his name is Jesus. Today you've heard about the lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the whole world. Nevertheless, the sacrifices of God far extend the cross and the blood that was shed that day. And it's nothing without a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It was not a random lamb that was culled from the herd of humanity that was crucified on the cross at Calvary. Had the lamb of which I speak been born in obscurity and if it had died in anonymity, the blood that he shed all the way from the praetorium the Golgotha would have been just as efficacious, just as powerful. But this lamb was not born in obscurity, nor did he die in anonymity. This lamb was born into a family. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he was laid in a manger. He was loved by his mother and by Joseph who was his not biological yet earthly father. This lamb would go on to be loved by multitudes. Now I know there were people that came just for the bread and there were those that came just for the fish and there were those that came just for what they could get from the master, from the healer from Messiah. Nevertheless, there were multitudes that fell in love with Jesus Christ. He was a Messiah that was revered and loved by the masses of people that knew him and heard him speak. He was loved. He was not just some dude that was pulled out of a crowd and, and placed on a cross whose blood is able to wash you of your sins. This lamb has a name. 
Now, this is personal now. This is very personal now. Luke 24, behold, verse 25, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Listen to this. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, which means Jesus was eight days old, and they brought him to the temple to have him circumcised according to the law. But Simeon, verse 28, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, <coughs> a light to the Lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. And Simon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Then he said to her, Yea. A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary, you're going to be in the center of suffering when all of this occurs. Mary, this is not just going to be about the Savior of the world. This is going to become very personal for you of what is going to be done to this child. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you this lamb that I'm talking about has a name. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He was brought into the world and given a name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Give me just a few moments and I will be pleased to open the altar. The Apostle Paul experienced many horrible and painful things during his extensive ministry. He was beaten with rods three times, unimaginable. If that alone, he was stoned to death and brought back to life. He suffered imprisonment and, and uh, suffered rejection. Uh, he was beaten. He was hated. He was despised. And the list goes on from there. And yet the Apostle Paul said, none of these things move me. And when the Lord directed me in this direction, I, I didn't understand 
what he meant. But he revealed to me that we have all been through a lot of stuff. We've been hurt. We've suffered pain, physical, emotional pain. We have fought spiritual battles. We have dealt with betrayal. Uh, there, there is an, a list of things that we have endured. And if you're going to make it in life, you've got to toughen up. You've got to get tough. You gotta, if you're going to endure any of these things, you've got to just get tough on the inside, the outer veneer, so that you can survive until the next trial, the next test, the, the next thing comes your way. And the Lord showed me that we get that way. So when the gospel is preached, we've, we've got, we're calloused now. We, we built up a, a veneer against such things. We, we become hard because you have to get hard in life if you're going to survive. But he let me know that the cross will break through that. The message of the Lamb will break through that. The message of Jesus will break through that. If a heart will just open up to God. That's the way it was. I suppose for me at my young 24 years cross was preached and there was a heaviness in the room that you could cut the atmosphere with a knife and yet I sat there dry eyed when I saw my wife weeping down between the pews I said God whatever's making her weep that's what I I barely got the words out of my mouth and I just burst out in tears. And the moment the altar was open, I ran to the altar. If you fight this, you'll fight it all the way to hell. If you fight against God and his grace and his mercy, you will earn your place in hell. You will never earn your place in heaven, but you can earn a place in hell. Just go ahead and resist and put up that wall and, and deal with what you're feeling right now like you've dealt with every other hurt and every other pain and, and every other thing that you've been through. And, and you will eventually gain a spot in hell. I pray it's not so. If you stand with me. Philip had just ended a revival in Samaria where the whole city, most remarkable thing that occurred there, the whole city was baptized and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And uh, he was led by God's Spirit to leave this revival and to go on down a certain way. And he did, and he came upon an Ethiopian eunuch This eunuch was in a high position in Ethiopia. <clears throat> he was on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship. And he was sitting in his chariot and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And uh, Philip approaches this eunuch as he was instructed to do. 
And he said, understandest what thou readest. And the eunuch answered, how can I except some man explain it to me? And so I wanted you to see it on the screen, Acts 8.32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shear. So he opened he not his mouth. And the eunuch asked Philip, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? And here it is. Philip opened his mouth, verse 35, and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Because this lamb has a name. This lamb has a name, and his name is Jesus. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If you want to know if baptism was a part of Philip's message, here it is. Yes, it was. Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down, both of them, or both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Years ago, we were at General Conference. M.D. Treese, who was a Greek scholar, said that in the original text, it says right there, in the original text, it was not translated by, by the, uh, the uh, scholars into the King James Version. It says right there in the original text that the eunuch received the Holy Ghost just as the Spirit of God caught Philip away. I'm so glad for that. Well, Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9, For God also hath highly given him a exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father going to invite you to come you say well I can get saved right here then why aren't you saved well, I can get the Holy Ghost right here then why don't you have the Holy Ghost no altars were made for people to bow before their creator and their savior altars were made so that we can bow on our knees under the Lord Jesus Christ, that lamb that died for us, and ask him to forgive us of our sins. And when you bow at this altar, you're not bowing to a church, you're not bowing to an organization, you're not bowing to a religion, you are bowing to God because he's the only one that can forgive you 
He's the only one that can save you. Don't reject him today. Don't tell him I'm not ready. Don't tell him maybe next week. Don't tell him some other time because there will never be a time that is better than right now. Right now. Paul told the the men on Mars Hill, the Greek philosophers, because they had an altar to the unknown God, and he said to them, Him, declare I unto you. And now we have declared unto you the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who has a name, who is calling you right now to Himself calling you by his spirit breaking every cord with his word breaking down every wall with his spirit tearing through all of the things that bind you so that you are free to give yourself to him would you come right now church let's come and pray let's make it easy for anyone to come so that they can come and bow before him and cry out to God, Jesus, Jesus, wash me, make me into a new creature. Take this old stony heart out and put in a heart of flesh. This lamb has a name and his name is Jesus come on everybody on the fence you need to come everybody sitting in the outer court you need to come everybody that's lukewarm you need to come thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus
Let's lift our hands right now and invite the presence of the Lord into this room. Let's invite the presence of the Lamb of God to dwell among us. Let His gentle touch be upon every heart. Jesus, we need you. We need you to open doors that are closed. We need you to bring down walls that have hindered. Thank you, Jesus. So we're supposed to be at 11 o'clock next Sunday? All right, here's the deal. We're in a sanctuary that's sanctified by prayer throughout the week. But you're going to be in the park that's not sanctified by prayer. When we come at 11, we're going to pray while we're there. But if you want God to move, you need to sow the soil every day with prayer so that when we step out of our vehicles on the Lakes Park, we are the anointed of God. We have authority over every spirit. We have authority over sickness. We have authority over disease. We have authority over addiction. We have authority over depression. It's more than just the songs that we sing. Next Sunday, the rubber meets the road. Every day, pray. Spend some time this week in fasting so that we arrive next Sunday in the authority and power of the Holy Ghost. Because that's what this is all about. We can have a picnic anytime. We're going to have church. We're going to have church. And come with faith, believing that God will get a hold of somebody. And that we will see great things. Will you believe God with me? Amen. Lord bless you. Love every one of you. Encourage somebody. Men hug the men, women hug the women. That's what we do here.